0: What are the chances you came to church this morning hoping to learn how to ruin a healthy relationship? Well, just in case you did, here are five ways according to Susan Krause in psychology today. First, demand the other person live up to your standards, not their own. See yourself in an overly idealistic, positive light, and assume that anyone and everyone should be attracted to you. Two, fail to build trust and loyalty. If you only focus on the superficial, you will fail to bond at a deep and meaningful level. Three, fixate on the eternal trappings more than on what really counts. Four, violate the trust that you have established. Rather than value trust and loyalty, focus on yourself. And seek to make yourself look good at all costs, even if it means throwing the other person under the bus. And five, fail to see your own weaknesses and faults. Hold others to high standards that you don't hold yourself to. Demand the perfection in others that you are failing to meet. Now, I'm quite sure that Susan did not have the Corinthian church in mind when she came up with this list, but any reading of 2 Corinthians makes it pretty clear that it fits them quite well. As you may remember to at least some degree over the past five years as I've been preaching through this letter, the Apostle Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church wasn't good, they were actually doing a really, really good job of ruining their relationship with him. I invite you to this letter, to Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll pick up here and get a glimpse into their relationship beginning at verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 11, and I will read through verse 19. I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Well, this is the last section of Paul's extended defense of his legitimacy as an apostle, a section that began in chapter 10 in verse 7. And in defending himself, Paul has not been seeking the approval of the Corinthians, he's been fighting to strengthen their faith. Since God is making his appeal through Paul, as he said in chapter 5, verse 20, for him to fight for his own legitimacy as an apostle is really to fight for the faith of the Corinthians. As verse 19 states, Paul defends his ministry before God, not for his own sake, but for the upbuilding of the Corinthians. These verses also end what has been called Paul's fool speech, which begins in chapter 11. As we see here in verse 1 of chapter, I'm sorry, in in verse 11 of chapter 12, Paul says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. This would probably make a lot more sense if we started reading back in chapter 10. But by way of reminder, Paul has been playing the fool because He felt like it was the only way to get through to the Corinthians. His point to them has been that if you can put up with these false teachers who really are fools, then you ought to be able to put up with me when I play the fool. And I think I need to do so in order to expose the foolishness of my opponents. Well, what is abundantly clear through all of this letter is that Paul deeply loved the Corinthian church. And he is doing everything he can to convince them of that. Chapter 6, verse 11, he says, My heart is wide open to you. Verse 11 of chapter 11, he says, God knows I love you. And then here in verse, verse 15, he says, If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Well, in spite of his repeated efforts, The Corinthians were not seeing Paul's love for them. And they certainly were not loving him in return. Have you ever been in a relationship where you feel like you're constantly being evaluated and critiqued? Where you kind of have to constantly explain and defend yourself? It's not very fun. And it's certainly reasonable in that spot to question their love for you. Well, Paul gives it one last shot here, and he he tries to win the Corinthians over, and and as he does, we can see three marks of Christian love, both through the negative example of the Corinthians, and also through the positive example of the Apostle Paul. So here they are. We will see this morning that Christian love is not superficial, it is not self-serving, and it is not suspicious. First, Christian love is not superficial. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Paul says at the end of verse 11, "...for I was not at all inferior to these super-apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works." for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. The love the Corinthians had for Paul was superficial. It was shallow. It was rather fickle. No church was in a better position to to defend and commend Paul. He says here in verse 11, I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. He, he tacks that on there at the end of verse 11. And even with his slightest brush of boasting he had engaged in as a fool was enough to embarrass Paul. For he knows that his qualifications as an apostle have nothing to do with his personal superiority. He saw himself truly as nothing. His only boast was in the Lord. This church was founded by Paul. He trained them in the way of righteousness. They should have loved him. They should have trusted him. They should have commended him. But instead, pretty much as soon as he left town, they were swept away by false teachers who were really attractive, had dynamic personalities, and they were far more captivating than boring old Paul. So, like the fickle boyfriend who keeps his eyes open for someone better, the Corinthians took Paul for granted, and they were drawn to leaders who were of higher status and more compelling, or both. Preferring the worldly standards of leadership modeled by the false teachers, then, the Corinthians began to feel shame that their father in Christ was meek, not that great of a speaker, somewhat financially insecure, who hesitated to talk about his spiritual experiences. Over the 18 months or so that Paul was with them, the Corinthians should have recognized that he was not in the least bit inferior to the super apostles in any way, in anything that was truly a Christian value. Paul spoke the truth straight up. He lived with moral integrity. And in verse 12, Paul reminds them that they saw him perform signs, wonders, and mighty works, which was an evidence of a true apostle. Now, now there's no account in either of Paul's letters to the Corinthians of any specific mar- miracles that they witnessed. But, but Acts, Acts mentions several miracles that Paul performed. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. There's that... Great story in Acts 20 of a boy named Eutychus who was sitting on a window and Paul just kept talking and kept talking and kept talking into the night. Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the window. Paul goes down, gives him a hug, brings him back to life. In chapter 19, 11 through 12 of Acts, we read that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Think of this. Extraordinary miracles so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So miracles in the post-Pentecostal period of the New Testament were sometimes performed by guys who were not apostles. There are some evidences of that. But normally, these types of miraculous acts were done by apostles. Paul says here that he performed these signs with utmost patience. But a more literal and I think better translation would say, in all endurance. That is, he performed these miracles in the context of all endurance. The Corinthians evidently wanted miracles without suffering, and they wanted triumphs without trials. But Paul makes it clear here that all the true signs of his apostleship, as well as the miracles that accompanied his ministry in Corinth, operated in the context of endurance of extreme suffering, like the beatings, the shipwreck, the the physical hardships, the thorn in the flesh that he describes in previous verses. And it's worth noting here that Paul does not dwell on his miracles like he does his weakness. And notice, it's a little bit subtle, but he even refuses to say that he did the miracles. You see that in verse 12? It's, he uses the passive tense, saying that the miracles were done by God. So he's seeking to show the Corinthian church that they were not inferior to any of the other churches in the number or types of miracles that Paul showed them. But in their eyes, he didn't value them as highly as other churches because he did not take their money. It was Paul's right as an apostle to be paid for his ministry, but with the Corinthian church, Paul set that aside. In the previous chapter, verses 7 through 11, Paul talked about this with them, and he explained that his refusal to accept their money didn't mean that he didn't love them. He just saw it as necessary to undermine the false teachers who demanded to be paid and claimed that they were on the same level as Paul. He did not want to be confused with the destructive frauds who were only in it for the money. And so with a bit of sarcasm, Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 13 that the worst thing about me is that I did not take your money. And then with cutting irony, he asks them to forgive him for such a horrible sin he committed against them. So whatever love the Corinthians may have had for Paul, I think we can see here that it was pretty superficial. It was superficial because they were easily drawn away to the more flashy teachers. And their love was shallow. It was shallow because they looked down on Paul for not taking their money. But perhaps the strongest evidence that their love for Paul was superficial and fickle is seen in their failure to defend him, their failure to commend him. As we consider the whole context of the letter and we gather from it, that most of the Corinthians were not opposed to Paul. So the majority were not the outspoken critics, the opponents. They just didn't stand up for him. Their sin was silence. One commentator noted that the community does not love Paul when it listens to and tolerates slander and puts him in the awkward position of having to commend himself to them all over again as if he were a stranger. I think we face the same temptation in our relationships. One pastor noted that when we love our ease more than we love the truth, we entertain false reports listen to gossip and hear slander because it is always easier to do nothing and give consent by our silence. It could also very easily be the fear of man. Our desire to please the person speaking in that moment and be loved by them is greater than our love for our friend and our desire to stand up for the truth. We fail to love others when we passively allow misunderstandings to not get cleared up. Gossip and backbiting to go unchecked. And reputations to be maligned. You see, hurting people relationally is not always active. So often it can happen from simply doing nothing. So first we see Christian love is not superficial. Next, we see that Christian love is not self-serving. It's not self-serving. Verse 14, Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul tells the Corinthians that when he visits them, he's going to stick to his policy of not taking their money. But then he says that his interest isn't in their money. His interest is in them. As one has noted, it's the gift of their lives to Christ, not of their money to himself, that Paul covets. His illustration here of parents and children should not be universalized as if children never have any obligation to care for their parents. Several of you have been and are currently really godly examples of what it looks like to care for aging parents. But rather, Paul here is making the point that his motive toward the Corinthians is like that of a parent seeking to bring their children to maturity and independence rather than exploit them. Several times in his letters, he describes himself as the Corinthians' father. Who cares for them? He brought them the gospel. He arranged their marriage to Christ. Like any good parent, he pointed out their sin and rebuked them. And here we see that he loved them faithfully and sacrificed himself for them. Since I'm your spiritual father, Paul says, it only makes sense that I give to you. I am not here to take from you. We understand this, right? Any of us who are parents or observed parents, we get this. So so when Jolene straightens up Josiah's room, she doesn't say, All right, buddy that'll be $2, have it to be my next Friday. No, parents provide for their kids. And like any good parent, Paul gladly gives of himself for their spiritual good, saying in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your soul. And we know those weren't empty words. We're not going to take the time to do it now, but but we could survey the whole of Paul's ministry to all of the churches that he served, and what we see is a man giving of his entire self for the souls of others. Paul's love for the Corinthians was not self-serving because he was not seeking his own interests. He served at a great cost to himself for the great benefit of others. In the third of the ten shepherding seminars, which addresses sacrificing for the flock as a servant and as a soldier, Pastor Miller shares the following quote from B.B. Warfield. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self-sacrifice will lead us his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. There is certainly clear application here for pastors and for anyone who would aspire to the office of an elder. No one who is unwilling to spend and be spent in sacrificial service for the flock is ready to be a faithful, spiritual shepherd. That is the work. And I am so grateful for elders who model this for us week in and week out. Pastor Miller will begin his 31st year as our senior pastor in September. And since day one, he has gladly spent himself for the spiritual good of our church. And as a church member, as a seminary student, as a young elder, he has consistently modeled this for me. As do Rocky, Eric, and Rich, and our deacons, and many other ministry leaders It is a privilege and blessing to serve with all of them. We should thank God for their selfless and sacrificial service for our spiritual good. But spending and being spent in selfless sacrifice for others isn't just something church leaders are supposed to do. It should mark all of us who follow Christ and I see this in the lives of so many of you who faithfully and joyfully serve in so many different ways in our church. It is true that the Apostle Paul was single. And as he states in 1 Corinthians 7, freedom from the cares and responsibilities of a wife and kid, kids, that makes a really big difference. Our service to the Lord and others will look a bit different based on whether or not we're married, whether or not we have kids, how many kids we have, our season of life, physical limitations, and lots of other factors. But we must not mute what Paul is saying here. He has a radical commitment to serving others. We talk about boundaries. And there certainly is wisdom in doing so. We don't want to get burnt out with serving or neglect our family with ministry and so on. It certainly is possible to take on too much. And there absolutely are times when we ought to say no. But with all of that, we need the balance of a verse like this. Some of us certainly may be tempted to spend ourselves more than we should. That's a temptation for some. But I suspect that for most of us, our greater temptation is to spend less of ourselves than we should. So in your relationship with your spouse, your kids, your fellow church members, How are you setting aside your desires and comforts? How are you sacrificially giving of yourself for their spiritual good? Boundaries are good and necessary, but we must regularly evaluate them and be willing to admit if they keep us from serving others more than they should. And if there's no room within our boundaries for us to spend and be spent in sacrificial service for others, then perhaps they need to be adjusted in some way. Adoniram Judson started the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society in 1814. And on the 100th anniversary, they produced a seal which showed an ox standing between an altar and a plow. You can see that here. There's an ox, and it's standing between an altar and a plow. And written above are the words, ready for either. I was looking at this on Friday in the office, and Aaron Downs Downs mentioned that he thought this would be a great tattoo. (laughs) But he was really struggling in deciding exactly where he should put it so feel free to help him out with that if you desire but i mean I, I love this image what a great picture of the selfless and sacrificial love paul showed to the corinthians ready for sacrifice ready for service that should be the heart motto for every follower of christ in our consideration of this example of Paul's selfless and sacrificial love, we must not miss how it reflects God's love for us in Christ. Jesus set aside the infinite riches of heaven to take on flesh and live in this broken, sin-cursed world. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He gladly was spent for our souls through death on the cross. So that is why Christian love is not self-serving. To follow Christ is to love as he did and pour out our lives in radical, sacrificial, and selfless love for the souls of others. And we're able to do so gladly, not out of duty, when our hearts are captivated by Christ and filled with gratitude for His love for us. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I would just call you to consider Christ's sacrifice for sin and consider that though guilty before God, He gave of Himself in your place. To bear the burden of your sin, to take the wrath that you deserved, so that you might, through repentance and faith, have forgiveness of sin and life with God forever. Consider the sacrifice of Christ and your need to embrace Him alone as your only hope for salvation. Christian love is not superficial. It is not self-serving. And third, we note in our text that Christian love is not suspicious. Verse 16. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him, Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Paul is giving everything he has for the spiritual good of the Corinthians. It seems that the more he loves them, the less they love him. And one of the ways in which their lack of love is seen is in suspicion of him. Despite the fact that Paul had not taken any money from the Corinthians, they have come to entertain the suggestion that his refusal to do so was just a cunning front that was masking his financial corruption. They accuse him of being a crafty soul which allowed him to get their money through deception when he wasn't willing to take it open and honestly. It's, it's, a, it's a twisted thought, and crazy to think about. He, he won't take it in an open and honest way, but he's going to take it through deception in a tricky sort of way. It appears likely that this charge of financial fraud arose in connection with Paul's persistent appeal in chapters 8 and 9 for the Corinthians to give towards the needy church in Jerusalem. Someone probably had started the rumor that Paul was going to use some of this money to line his own pockets. So his assistants who came to take the money, they would say, would come and pick it up and carry it to Paul. And who knows what would happen to it then? Wink, wink, suspecting Paul of taking a little off the top. Of course, a letter of thanks from the Jerusalem church serving as a receipt would put an end to this outrageous conspiracy theory, but the money hadn't been sent yet, so Paul had to do what he could to stop it. So he seeks to defend himself against this ridiculous accusation by pointing out that the assistance he sent, who was Titus and an unnamed brother who was praised among the churches, he's trying to point out that these guys did not act like the exploiters bullies that they seemed to think they were, but they conducted themselves in the very same spirit displayed by Paul. As Carson noted, the thrust of his response was to shame the Corinthians into recognizing that the demeanor, self-denial, discipline, and integrity of Paul and his assistants are so demonstrable and obvious at every level of their dealings that the charges are absurd. The Corinthians had stooped pretty low, hadn't they? It's really a sad reflection of their sin before God, their spiritual immaturity, and their lack of love towards Paul. We sit here and we rightly say, those rascals, how could they have accused him of such a thing? But as we judge the Corinthians for their lack of love towards Paul in this way, we really need to look at ourselves and recognize that this is a temptation that we all face, the temptation to look with suspicion on those who love us and who have demonstrated care for us. Now, this is not to say that we can never disagree with people who love us or who have been helpful to us, but we should be eager to give them the benefit of the doubt, not eager to look for faults or assume the worst. As Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 13 of his first letter that Brian read earlier, love focuses on and rejoices in what is true. And it believes all things. It assumes the best and gives the benefit of the doubt. So as we go through life with numerous relationships within this church and with many believers outside the church, it is far better to be disappointed and hurt once in a while by others than to live a life of suspicion Towards them, A lot of pain and conflict could be avoided if in the spirit of Christ we would simply bear with one another and not cultivate suspicion. Now, of course, if there's a problem, it very likely needs to be discussed. And most of the time it absolutely should be. But if you don't think it's something that should be talked about, then you have to put it into the category of love covering a multitude of sins, which means just that. The issue is covered by love, and it's not something you will hold against them. One said so well that it's better to go through life thinking a bunch of your friends are great and find out they are slime than to go through life thinking they are slime and find out in heaven that you had the problem and not them. So this small glimpse into Paul's relationship with the struggling Corinthian church has given us the opportunity to consider a bit about love and our call to love others as God has loved us. Christian love is not superficial. It isn't captivated by the standards of the world, and it speaks up for truth in the defense of others. Christian love is not self-serving. It pours itself out in sacrificial service for the spiritual good of others. And Christian love isn't suspicious. It fixates on truth, believes the best, and gives the benefit of the doubt to those who love us and care for us. Let's pray. Father, as individuals, as family members, as a church, Lord, I pray that our love would not be superficial. Grow us more and more to see and value what really matters in all areas of life. And Lord, keep us from being captivated by what is small and shallow. And Father, may our love compel us to speak when we should and stand up for what is true and right. Father, help us to grow more and more in love that it not be self-serving. Thank you so much for Christ who poured out his life for us. And with hearts of gratitude, Father, may we pour out our lives in selfless and sacrificial service for the spiritual good of others. Father, may our love not be suspicious. Help us to not assume the worst and to give others the benefit of the doubt. And Father, more and more, we ask that you would grow us and change us May we love others as you love us, and may our love for one another be seen and put on display so that all may know that we are indeed your children and followers of Christ. Please do this work in us for your glory. In Christ we ask. Amen.